0: Welcome to the Indian Ocean World Podcast. Welcome to the Indian Ocean World Podcast. My name is Philip Gooding, a postdoctoral fellow at the Indian Ocean World Centre, McGill University in Montreal, Canada. Our guest today is Dr. Joseph McQuaid. Dr. McQuaid is the Richard Charles Lee postdoctoral fellow in the Asian Institute at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy, at the University of Toronto. He is the editor-in-chief at the NATO Association of Canada, and he is affiliated with the Queen's University Global History Initiative and with the Canadian Network for Research on Terrorism, Security and Society. He is also a managing editor of the Journal of Indian Ocean World Service. He achieved his PhD in history from the University of Cambridge and has recently published his book called "The Genealogy of Terrorism: Colonial Law and the Origins of an Idea." with Cambridge University Press. I'm delighted that Dr. McRae is here to discuss his book and his ongoing research with us today. Joseph, thank you very much for joining us.
1: Thank you very much. It's a real pleasure to be here today.
0: Great. Um, So, Joseph, firstly, can you uh, introduce your book to us? What is a genealogy of terrorism? And what were you aiming to achieve with your research?
1: Sure. Um, and so just kind of starting off with the title, one note that I make uh, within the text that I'd like to kind of start with is that the, um, the description of it as a genealogy rather than the genealogy is deliberate. And so I do want to kind of say off the bat that it's not intended as being a um, comprehensive genealogy of the term in all of its forms. Instead, what it is, is an exploration of British colonial law in India from roughly 1830 to 1930, um, looking at how within this context, the category of terrorism emerged, um, and then from there drawing connections to a wider global story. Um, So this is a project that certainly is motivated uh, by interests in global history and uh, the history of ideas, but it is also intended to be rooted Um, within the Indian subcontinent and within colonial law specifically. And so the project really kind of uh, evolved out of older research um, on the uh, revolutionary movement in Bengal from the early 20th century. And so just uh, to give a bit of context um, for listeners, I'll just start off by kind of briefly describing um, what that context is. So many people are familiar um, with uh, Mohandas Gandhi and the nonviolent uh, independence movement of uh, India. Um, people are, tend to be less familiar, though, with the fact that in tandem with this movement, there was also a fairly widespread uh, revolutionary movement that was intending to drive the British out of India through the use of targeted assassinations, armed uprising, um, and other methods that uh, kind of retroactively are referred to as terrorism. Um, and so, in doing research on uh, these figures and looking especially at uh, the 1920s um, revolutionaries like Raj Bihari Bose and uh, Sachindranath Sanyal. One thing that I came across uh, within the, my initial exploration of the documents was a uh, what seemed like kind of an interesting shift in language that was happening from uh, the 1910s to the 1920s. And so in looking at this 1918 document, uh, the Sedition Committee Report, um, which was produced just after the First World War, I found that the term terrorism only pops up a few times, um, I think about eight total, And it is mostly to describe a very specific thing. Uh, The context is the, uh, quote, terrorism of witnesses. And so it's specifically referring to intimidation of witnesses who could implicate members of the revolutionary conspiracy. By contrast, then, when I was looking at a a 1924 ordinance that turned into a law in 1925, um, within the public declaration um, of this law, Uh, the speeches that were made by government officials were using uh, exclusively the language of terrorism and describing this as a law that was targeting terrorism. Um, And so this was interesting to me. um, And I thought, you know, certainly this could just be Um, A coincidence or a matter of uh, who produced the two documents in contrast to each other but this was kind of the central uh, thing that piqued my interest and that led me to look further into the history of these laws and the history of uh, the term terrorism within India and so this was something that I explored through my doctoral research and I was really interested Kind of first and foremost, in just uh, taking this central question of uh, whether there is, whether this change that I saw within those two documents actually represents a broader change within the language used to describe revolutionary violence in the early 20th century. And then also, um, if Assuming that, that this was uh, kind of a more widespread trend, uh, what does this mean? Was this a deliberate uh, thing? What, how did it relate to um, other understandings of political violence at the time? Specifically thinking about uh, Bolshevism and uh, Irish Republicanism, for example. Um, and so that was really what was motivating the research, and then as I did research in various archives in uh, Britain in Geneva and in India especially, um, I found that this did seem to reflect a broader kind of linguistic trend uh, in terms of how the revolutionary violence was being described. So I found that in the earlier documents uh, from the aughts and from the 1910s, um, the term terrorism did appear. Um, It came up periodically, but it was not the primary uh, term that was used to describe revolutionaries who were conducting violence against the colonial state. Whereas when I looked at documents from the 1920s and the 1930s, uh, these actions were almost exclusively described uh, in the language of terrorism. Um, So this was interesting to me, and so this kind of checked that first box of thinking, okay, this isn't just kind of, you know, a one-off as a result of the reading of these two documents. And so Then in looking further, uh, I did just find some very interesting uh, kind of patterns in terms of the use. And um, specifically, I found kind of what, uh, what every researcher loves to find, which is actually um, a bit of a smoking gun in the archive where someone is explicitly articulating the thing that I think is going on, but uh, kind of, uh, you know, we're always looking for that one thing where someone actually says it out loud. Um, and so this is in an exchange um, surrounding actually that uh, 1924 1925 law that I, that kind of initially piqued my interest. Um, and in an exchange between the Governor General of India and the Secretary of State uh, back in Britain, there was an earlier draft of uh, that initial document that I looked at um, that had used the term terrorism um, to describe the revolutionaries. And in the initial draft that I found of it, uh, the term terrorism actually isn't used once. And so that was sent to the Secretary of State. Um, And so I then kind of found the actual version that had been sent back with red markings on it. Um, And so what the Secretary of State had done is underline the terms revolutionary, which had been used by the Governor General, and written terrorist over top. And so the governor general in responding to this, um, so the secretary of state doesn't actually uh, explain his rationale, he just makes the edits. Uh, But then in responding to it, the governor general says, um, I actually think that term revolutionary is more appropriate in the Indian context. Um, However, I understand that the term terrorism um, will make this easier uh, to convince our colleagues in the British parliament of the necessity of the law. So I'm fine with you making those changes to paraphrase. Um, so this was quite interesting to me because this did indicate that, um, that shift in language was actually, at least on the part of some officials, a conscious effort, um, to shift the way of describing the revolutionaries from revolutionaries, uh, to terrorists. And so that is kind of the, uh, that's kind of the central story of how the project took shape and then kind of uh, how I felt that it actually warranted kind of the inquiry that I was giving it. Um, and then from there, it was kind of a matter of expanding further, thinking about um, going kind of both forward and backwards in time. So uh, moving back into the 19th century to see before the term terrorism started to be used, what are some of the other terms that were used to describe um people against whom emergency laws were deemed necessary, um, and so this led me to look at uh, sources describing the so-called thugs of India, uh, pirates, uh, fanatics, um, very briefly this term of uh, running amok, which was used in Malaya. Um, I don't expand too much on that in the, um, in the book, but this is another term that is kind of in common parlance today. You said someone runs amok. Um, this is also had a very kind of specific um, medico-legal pathology in terms of what it described about the supposed kind of fanaticism and irrationality of uh, Malayan warriors. And um, And so that was on the one end kind of moving uh, backwards in time and then also moving forwards in time to uh, 1937, which is the first international law that explicitly targets terrorism. So there had been an earlier convention uh, that had been addressing international anarchism as it was called, um, which I mean, for all intents and purposes, there is a huge amount of kind of cross-pollination in terms of these two categories in this period. But it's 1937 when anarchism has really been replaced by uh, this concern with terrorism. And there we see a lot of conversations happening between heads of state um, in various governments, including uh, Britain, Romania, uh, Czechoslovakia, um, and the representative for India, um, which was a member of the League. I won't get into all of the intricacies of that, but that in and of itself, is an interesting story because India was the only member of the League of Nations that didn't actually have its own sovereignty. So it was um, British and semi-sovereign princely representatives were the Indian representatives at Geneva. Um, and then we're kind of speaking for the Indian population that didn't itself have any kind of actual representation. So, I mean, that's kind of its own interesting story. But um so that kind of gave me a chance to look at um to situate this story within a larger context and think about how the term uh was being understood at the level of international law and so then i mean just kind of thinking about uh where this falls with my interests and with kind of what i think some of the broader um contributions or kind of uh, ways forward from this study are um is I think that uh, this kind of approach will hopefully be valuable for thinking about um, really the historical context in which terms emerge, uh, the ways that language changes over time, um, and the ways that that is inflected with a whole range of political and cultural meanings that are specific to the context in which it's occurring. So when we now use terms like uh, terrorist or thug or someone running amok or a fanatic, um, you know, these are all terms that are actually very commonly used today, uh, but all of them have very specific uh, colonial genealogies um, and are specifically linked to this uh, longer history of um, really of a uh, colonial state that was, um, as I describe it within the book, kind of simultaneously anxious and violent, um, in that it, uh, a lot of colonial officials, you know, were not kind of the cool detached bureaucrats um, that were previously referred to. These are people coming with their own cultural suppositions and uh, fears and all of that, um, but at the same time are representing a deeply authoritarian state that had the capacity for extreme violence against its own subjects. Um, And then I kind of mention a few examples um, like the uh, executions of Mandari Sikhs or uh, the reprisals after 1857 or the Amritsar massacre. Um, But so, uh, yeah, so this kind of tension between that anxiety on the one hand and the capacity for state violence on the other hand um, is really, it's at the intersection, I think, of these two themes that we see these terms emerging as ways of labeling uh groups that are viewed as threatening by the colonial officials and so um just on kind of a final point of clarification um so it's uh you know the study is not does not at all claim that kind of um you know that terrorism and thugs and uh fanatics that these groups didn't exist because they did you know there's uh, ample evidence of all of them within the historical record um but it's more about how in really all of these cases that i've personally investigated um when you actually do the kind of deeper archival digging and look at what is going on in local contexts you usually see that these groups that are labeled with these very kind of universalizing terms so terrorists are seen as kind of Terrorism is something that's seen as kind of transcending borders and being a global category of analysis, when actually when we go and we look at the revolutionary movements, we see a wide range and the kind of overlap between so-called terrorists versus revolutionaries versus, even as I argue in chapter three, um, non-violent political activists as well. There is a lot of slippage between these because terrorism often is more of a tactic than an identity marker. Um, and so when it is instead imbued with that sense of being an identity marker, um, it becomes a way of homogenizing what is actually a very heterogeneous category. And the same really applies um, if you look at Kim work Khan Thuggy. We see that the so-called thugs who were seen as this kind of pan-India organized conspiracy of Kali worshippers that had a specific set of rituals and their own language, really what we see is actually a very kind of loose collection of different bandit networks and highwaymen and demobilized retainers. Um, And then so the same goes for pirates and the same goes for fanatics. And so when we say that these categories are being produced or constructed, it's not that they're being conjured out of thin air, but it's that they are being articulated in a specific way or through specific legal measures in response to uh, threats that may or may not be legitimate, Um, but which are then kind of uh, articulated in a way that is intelligible um, to colonial officials and which can often be uh, really at odds with the way that they would have been understood within kind of local or indigenous societies.
0: Thanks for that, Joseph. Uh, Yeah, it's a really fascinating book and I really enjoy reading it. I'm really pleased that you introduced it to us uh, as well. Just very much on a broad level, um, terrorism is a word that we're all very familiar with. It's a word that hits our airwaves frequently, all the time. Um, and I just wondered, how much does this present context uh, shape your research and also shape your interest in the research as well?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think, that's, uh, I think that's a great question. I mean, I'm definitely part of this generation that has grown up within the context of you know, the war on terror. Um, I mean, certainly nowhere you know, comparable to the extent to which that's been true for people, um, in, uh, in the Middle East or Central Asia or, uh, other parts of the world. But I think for anyone who has kind of grown up, um, you know, around kind of the turn of the 21st century, this was really the defining global event. And I think continued to be until this year, really, whereas now kind of that's probably true of, um, coronavirus. And so probably in 2040, we'll see this big emergence of scholarship on, uh, you know, pandemic disease. Um, so yeah, I think that that definitely, uh, there's no denying that that has kind of shaped uh, my interest. Um, I very distinctly remember uh, 9-11 because it was my 11th birthday. Um, and uh, so I have, you know, very clear memories of that happening and of kind of, you um, everything that followed that. And so certainly I think it's impossible to think about terrorism today without uh, approaching it to some extent from that perspective of the present. Um, And that's really part of why my intention with the book is to try um, for my readers, but also for myself as well, to better understand um, kind of how we can try to um, step outside of that is probably not the right phrase because probably not possible, but how we can think through that and how we can uh, try to understand w- where this came from and kind of try to at least imagine a kind of pre 9/11 and I mean, beyond that, a pre-World War II uh, understanding of what terrorism actually meant. And I mean, one thing that was really striking to me is that when I was looking at these documents from the 1930s, um, There are just so many resonances with the current discussions today Um, And the same really even goes is true if we look at the anti thug campaigns as well Um, And so this is really kind of thinking about how our current kind of intellectual landscape on this topic has emerged from kind of a longer trajectory of contexts and events um, I think is really one of the, uh, definitely one of my preoccupations with uh, with engaging in this research, for sure.
0: So you mentioned in there about trying to um, think through it from a pre-9-11 standpoint and also a pre-World War II standpoint. Um, but you also note in kind of the formation of this project, um, it was from this discrepancy between references in a document, a document in 1918, and then the law of nineteen twenty-four to twenty-five. This immediately makes me think that World War One plays a significant role here. Um, how does World War One shape this genealogy of terrorism, this emergence of terrorism as a discourse? I suppose World War One and I suppose actually it's aftermath here too.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it is kind of a funny element of the book, is that I don't quite explicitly answer this, and I think part of the reason that I steer away from having kind of a clean answer to that is that I don't know that we can. I think that there are so many different kind of um, different strands at work here. And so I kind of instead try to flag some of the historical trends that are happening and how those are shaping uh, understandings without necessarily saying that there is kind of one or three that are kind of exactly how this is happening. But I mean, just in terms of that, context um so a few of the uh kind of interrelated themes that i think are necessary to bring up um so in international terms uh the two things would be of course uh the uh wilsonian notion of self-determination um and the bolshevik revolution and so these were uh very much these two ideas were very much in conversation with each other um Wilsonian uh, self-determination um, and kind of Bolshevik ideas about international revolution were really kind of working um, as competing themes from the beginning. And so, you know, we're very familiar with the Cold War. Um, but this is, uh, you know, as scholarship has shown, there is kind of an international, uh, not a Cold War, but a kind of battle of ideas between these two strands of international thought. And so just in terms of their consequences. um, So, I mean, Bolshevism, uh, like the French Revolution in 1789, which totally shaped the politics of the 19th century, the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917 really kind of lays the groundwork for uh, the possibility of imagining toppling a state that seems invincible. And so for uh, many, you know, whether in kind of political or nationalist or ethnic terms, you know, that revolution could come to mean a range of things for a range of people. And so in terms of what is kind of both inspiring uh, this kind of political radicalism, um, as well as what is motivating the fears of uh, national and colonial governments um, in looking at what happens to kind of their contemporaries in Russia, um, this is a major strand that's influencing things. Uh, Wilsonian self-determination, the idea that um, people have a right to uh, their own nation state. I mean, of course, as you know, many have pointed out, um, this was never intended to apply to the colonies. This was a European idea that was really about kind of the Balkans and Central Europe. Um, so Wilson certainly never intended self-determination to apply uh, beyond Europe's borders. Um, But at the same time, it is an idea that gave a kind of, well, not necessarily gave, but that helped to inform the language of activists who had already been engaging in similar projects before this. Um, So nationalist movements like that in India did not come out of self-determination. It wasn't kind of that, you know, Wilson declared this and suddenly people were picking up on it. They had already been uh, fighting for this for you know, decades prior. Um, but what it did was it gave a kind of international legitimacy to this specific type of language, because it was being articulated by a US president as being the kind of stated goal of, an interna- of the international system and of the global order. And that made it harder to um, argue against using kind of the pre-war vocabularies. And so I think that this is part of what shaped this kind of uh, need for a new vocabulary um, and then so those are two international strands and so i mean like i said there are, are a lot of things so i will just touch on One more in terms of the uh, so those are kind of at the uh, at the global level than at the local level in India um, The first world war is profoundly important uh, in a number of ways. I mean um, It's really coming out of the war uh, This uh, attempt to maintain the emergency legislation passed to police revolutionaries, which I discuss in uh, chapter uh, three So the kind of attempt to maintain this and the political instability generated is really what leads to the Amritsar massacre in 1919. And this is really what uh, kind of pivots Gandhi from being someone who was uh, in favor of, um, uh, you know, who was against racial discrimination, or at least racial discrimination against Indians. He was with it against uh, Africans. Um, but uh, so he, before this, was really more interested in kind of critiquing elements or laws within colonialism, but it's really after um, after the Amritsar massacre that he becomes very disillusioned with um, uh, with colonialism in general as a system of government. And um, The other thing then that comes of this is that uh, we have the rise of mass nationalism and Gandhi really is able to mobilize huge numbers of people. And so what before had been kind of a debate within the Indian National Congress between the so-called extremist and moderate wings becomes really an all India phenomenon. Um, And so this, I think, is another thing that makes it harder for the colonial state to Uh, dismiss nationalist aspirations as such because it becomes something that, um, and again, kind of through this language of self-determination, through this uh, outreach to large numbers of the Indian public, um, and then through the kind of uh, transnational networks of solidarity and support that Indian activists are able to build during this time, it becomes a lot harder to just kind of, on the face of it, dismiss nationalist aspirations as such and so instead uh it becomes kind of a matter of um you know constructing these kind of very vague timelines using these more kind of general terms like um Uh, responsible government rather than self-determination but within there you do really see this shift in language and so I think that this um, all of these things kind of taken together are uh, kind of laying the groundwork for um, this new category of the terrorist which becomes kind of a figure that can be positioned outside of the struggle for self-determination or outside of the nationalist movement because um, these colonial officials uh, start to refer to the terrorists as being kind of enemies of their own country so they're not viewed as being legitimate politicians they're viewed as being uh these kind of um people who just want violence for the sake of violence um and i think that it's really the uh the post-war uh kind of broader political landscape that is making that more necessary um, as a strategy
0: Wonderful. And one of the things you, you mention in, in the book um, that might be kind of in support of this colonial paradigm was the idea of revolutionaries using propaganda by bomb. Um, and you argue that in the 1890s and 1910s that revolutionaries saw bombs as a more effective way of getting the message out than through um, pamphlets and speeches. But by the 1920s, they're using um, pamphlets and speeches as well. To what do you describe this shift within revolutionary tactics um, at this time?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, they certainly, um, the pamphlets and speeches are deployed throughout. So, I mean, even when they're using this, uh, what I call propaganda by bomb, um, they are still also using these other, um, uh, these other means of communication. But Um, What you really see in uh, the late 19th century and into the 20th century is that, so there is this emergence of uh, the uh, mass, like mass publishing and um, uh, vernacular newspapers, Um, but there are two kind of issues, and so I mean this really opens up the um, kind of Habermas's public sphere um, to a much broader audience, Um, and not just audience, people are able to kind of be interlocutors to a greater degree. But at the same time, there are still two major limitations on this. Um, And so the first is uh, just access to publishing is something that already requires uh, capital and infrastructure. Um, and so this immediately does still preclude a lot of people from participating. Um, there is also, um, within kind of that point, also the issue of, uh, literacy. Um, so someone has to be literate in order to be writing articles and their audience has to be literate in order to read them. Um, and then the second kind of major, um, limitation of this new style of communication is also, uh, just the fact that it lends itself to policing and restrictions. And so, um, you know, from the beginning, there are restrictions in place in terms of what can and can't be printed. Um, and, uh, you know, incitement to violence specifically, um, is something that, um, you know, quite understandably is still part of, uh, the law in most countries and by most people is seen as being kind of a, uh, a reasonable restriction on kind of pure, unadulterated freedom of speech. Um, But so for groups that have uh, these kind of more radical political goals, um, which uh, they want to convey, Um, you know, publishing in newspapers is often just not an option and even for, uh, pamphlets. And so there's a really good book on the revolutionary pamphlets, um, by Shukla Senyal. And, um, so this does show how they do with the pamphlets. This provides kind of an easier underground method of printing and disseminating, uh, the ideas. Um, but so the pamphlets do still reach an audience, but what the, uh, what the uh, propaganda by bomb does is it actually manages to kind of leap above those pamphlet audiences and actually reach the audiences of the mass newspapers. Um, And if we think about that, this, even today, you know, terrorism and the media have a totally symbiotic relationship because without the media, you actually, terrorism kind of ceases to become a meaningful analytical category because terrorism is primarily about conveying a a message. Um, So it's the use of violence to convey a message in very, like that's kind of the most loose and expansive definition of terrorism probably, which, and I think that that expansiveness makes it probably better than many definitions because it uh, kind of is more applicable to a wide range of contexts rather than being kind of specifically determined by particular group of interest, but um, so uh, what happens then with this relationship between terrorism and the media is that when you have an attack carried out by terrorists, whether we're dealing with the current uh, like contemporary setting or a historical setting, um, it gets reported on because it you know, makes for interesting news. People buy newspapers that talk about terrorism. People subscribe to websites that talk about terrorism. Um, And so despite the fact that in the majority of contexts, you know, there are some exceptions to this, but in the majority of contexts around the world, terrorism accounts for far fewer fatalities than, you know, any number of things, whether you want to talk about car accidents or heart disease or... um, But it's something that kind of captures people on a visceral level. People want to read about it. Um, And so in this sense, uh, the media really, even when it is critical of terrorism, even when it is condemning terrorism, it is actually really serving the function of terrorism, which is spreading the message of the deed to a wide audience in a way that if, if no one reported on terrorism at all, people would still hear about acts of violence but it wouldn't really be terrorism any maybe in local contexts it would people would still be terrorized in local contexts but it wouldn't have that kind of uh, international currency that it has and so that i think is really the distinction between the uh, the pamphlet publishing versus uh, the propaganda by bomb, is that um, the pamphlets are able to reach certain audiences of people who are interested in reading this material. So you can distribute them and people will pass it to other people in their network and say, oh, this is interesting, let's take a look. Um, Whereas with uh, terrorism, people who have no interest in it or people who are critical of it are still very much aware of it because it's on the front page of the newspaper.
0: So in this sense, is the message in terms of the readership of the newspapers, is the, re- is the message attempted to cause fear amongst the colonizer? Um, but also, does it does violence in and of itself in this colonial context? Did it serve as a recruiting tool as well? And I kind of want to kind of my perspective coming into this would be it's from independence wars in Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, and Fr- Franz Fanon is, is one of the major thinkers here. Uh, and he writes um, in Wretched of the Earth, and I don't think he references India um, in Wretched of the Earth, and I'd have to reread it again to, but I think there might be some applicability here which maybe you could contact on. Mm-hmm. And he writes, um, at the individual level, violence is a cleansing force. It rids the colonized of their inferiority complex, of their passive and despairing attitude. It emboldens them and restores their self-confidence. In this, do you see this as something that the that revolutionaries are trying to do through their propaganda by bomb as well?
1: Yeah, absolutely, and this is a common—you uh, know—masculinity plays a very central role to uh, terrorism, to revolutionary networks, to insurgency, whatever kind of label you want to apply to it. Um, but masculinity is really central as a kind of um, as a recruiting strategy and as a form of belonging that is provided by these networks. Um, And so I discuss a bit in uh, chapter two, uh, these samites, these organizations, um, and how they are uh, kind of um, structured along the lines of this cultural rejuvenation and a physical, uh, like physical fitness. Um, They're kind of, uh, I describe a bit of kind of the daily routine that's mapped out, which probably wasn't actually followed in practice because it's quite insanely rigorous um, but it basically consists of kind of interchanging of physical training and studying religious and cultural texts are basically the two kind of main things and so um, this is the other uh, kind of element of it when we think about it um, and how local context matters um from this standpoint i mean there are a number of reasons why this uh starts off in bengal um but one of them is certainly the fact that Bengal is where you have this discourse of the effeminate Bengali man um, who is dismissed within uh, colonial uh, discourse, within colonial uh, culture, um, as being kind of unmanly, feeble, Um, And if you look at, for example, the uh, army composition of uh, the Indian army going into the First World War, um, I forget the exact numbers, but the number of Bengalis who are in the army is very low, and the number in combat roles is just totally negligible when you think about the proportion of uh, Bengalis in the overall Indian population. And I mean, if you look at a specific example of Rashbihari Bose, who's one of the uh, revolutionaries I talk about, um, I believe he tried to join the Indian army at one point and was denied. Um, And there were certainly a few of the revolutionaries who that was the case for. Um, And so you do really see that um, there is this desire to kind of, um, within the pamphlet literature too, there are specific kind of calls to Uh, for uh, young men to prove themselves as men. Uh, There is this personification of India as um, a mother who is being uh, kind of dishonored um, by the British, um, who's being kind of ravished by the British. And so it is the responsibility of the Indian men to prove themselves as men by uh, protecting the honor of the kind of personification of India and then also um, there are specific references to um, Indian women within the pamphlets too where it says you know your uh, your daughters and your sisters and your mothers um, are being dishonored by the British like are you need to prove yourselves as men um, so yeah I think and I think that um, you know this is uh, you know certainly I will not claim that this is a universal thing because, again, the local particularity really matters, but I think uh, this, you know, there is some work certainly on um, the relationship between uh, masculinity and extremism, but I think that there needs to be more because this is really um, a central concern in many of the instances that i've looked at even in terms of kind of beyond my own research just kind of in more general reading this is certainly something that uh comes up and that we can also see with the rise of um these uh incel extremists right this is um, a new kind of maybe not new but a kind of uh category of extremism that is kind of being newly labeled and recognized um, as belonging to specific kind of ideological um, networks and is again, really driven by these uh, very toxic uh, notions of masculinity.
0: Uh, thanks for answering those questions, Joseph. Um, and congratulations again on the publication of your book. Um, before we let you go though, do you want to just uh, share with us what you're working on now? What's your, what's your, what's your next project?
1: Sure. Yeah. Thank you. Um, yeah. So this is something that, um, it, uh, you know, as a postdoc, you're really supposed to, you apply with your second project, but then you spend the whole time working on your first project. Um, so that's really been, uh, my experience. Um, but I, so it is really interesting now to actually have, um, the book finished and be able to start, uh, really thinking properly about my next project, but um, kind of where it is at now and the direction that it's going is moving into the post-colonial period, um, looking at the, um, similar to how this book does, kind of looking at the broader Bay of Bengal region. um, So India, uh, modern day Bangladesh, and then also moving into Myanmar. Continuing to look at um, kind of uh, emergency laws, looking at the continuities of emergency laws, um, many of which specifically build on earlier uh, colonial precedents. Um, But then also uh, kind of looking at some of the other factors that are driving political instability and ethnic conflict in the region, um, specifically as it pertains to um, environmental change, uh, environmental uh, difficulties, um, as well as um, new infrastructural projects and kind of the political economy of the developmental post-colonial state, Uh, mining operations, uh, infrastructure construction, uh, China's new Belt and Road Initiative will kind of be the most uh, current iteration of this and will likely drive things kind of uh, going forward. But then also just looking at kind of uh, this broader role between uh, the political economy of development and the kind of uh, displacement of local and indigenous uh, groups, and then the kind of formation of uh, separatist movements and uh, new kind of uh, political constituencies as a response to this.
0: That sounds absolutely wonderful. I can't wait to hear more about that as it as it comes to fruition. Um, again, congratulations on your wonderful book, and thank you very much for joining us, Dr. Joseph McQuaid. Um, that's all we've got time for today. Um, thank you also to René Mandeville, who is working in the background to produce this podcast. Uh, and once again, my name is Philip Gooding, and you have been listening to the Indian Ocean
1: World Podcast.
0: The Indian Ocean World Podcast would like to acknowledge the generous support of the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. This podcast series is part of the SSHRC-funded partnership project Appraising Risk, Past and Present, interrogating historical data to enhance understanding of environmental crises in the Indian Ocean world.